Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friends, Dennis Moroshko and Wade Irely, who are the co-founders of Degree Insurance, which is an organization, a startup designed to help college students with uh, funding their university journey and beyond. Uh, I've met, I've known both of them for multiple years, and uh, I first met Wade when he was building an organization called Rise Air on the West Coast, and I was thinking of joining a startup in a similar aviation vein here in Dallas, but they both have remarkable entrepreneurial journeys, and I love what they're doing in the educational space. So Wade and, uh, and Dennis, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, happy to be here, Ben. Thanks for having us. So I want to start kind of with both of your individual journeys and, you know, tie it together as we get into the conversation and how you guys kind of worked on the current path. But Wade, let's start with you. You know, you've been an entrepreneur for, for most of your life. You started with public service, but walk us through your journey at a high level and what kind of inspired you to take the road less traveled and start your own companies. You know, I, uh, uh, man, I never had a career path. I never, I, I wasn't that kid who grew up and knew what he wanted to do. And so I came out of school. Uh, I went to, I grew up in Kansas city and, and went to college at a, a local state school nearby. Uh, and then didn't have a job, didn't know what to do. And I moved to Washington DC on a, essentially on a whim. My cousin was, uh, had gotten a job teaching in downtown DC or something. And I just hitched a ride. Um, and so then I, Ran around DC, found a job, you know, trying to make it. And I ended up uh, spending a little time. I spent a year and a half, I guess, uh, at the White House and traveling with the vice president, managing uh, his press logistics on the road as an advance rep. And then, uh, and then I joined an intelligence agency. So I was, I, I was in the first graduating class after 9-11. And, and everybody was pretty motivated to do sort of public service work. And I applied and subject to a security clearance was hired. And, and uh, you know, five and a half years later, they came back and said, good news, the security clearance came through. Uh, so in 2007, 2008, maybe I joined, uh, I joined the federal government in, with an intelligence agency. I did that for four or five years. I was an operator in the field. Then I came out of the field and was an economist um, there at the Pentagon for a while. And uh, my little brother uh, was a pilot, needed a job. I had just come back from Iraq. I had a baby two weeks after we got home. And, you know, maybe it was just time to do something different with my life. And so he called me and said, you know, unlike me, he always knew what he wanted to do and he wanted to be a pilot and he put all this work in and all of a sudden there's no jobs for pilots. And he said, what do I do? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I never really had a plan. So you did, what's it going to take to keep you in the air? And he's like, kind of, you know, he's younger and still flippant, I guess. And he says, I don't know, buy a plane, start an airline. And I said, okay, well, I'll look into it then. <laughs> And I hung up the phone and, uh, you know, lo and behold, six months later, we were starting an airline out of a startup incubator in California. And, um, I'd gotten into graduate school and, uh, opted not to go, to, uh, cause we'd raised, raised some money. And it was there that I found out, I, I just truly blindly stumbled into the fact that like, I might be good at, you know, some parts of what it takes to be successful in an early stage company. And, uh, and I certainly was happier than I'd been. I felt, felt really validated and valued and like the work I was doing was important in a number of the government roles, but I didn't, uh, man, it just clicks in your heart when you find the right thing. And I knew <laughs> it was so much fun. I knew I would, I would have a hard time doing something else for a very long time. And so we did, you know, a couple airlines and then, uh, and then now, you know, Dennis and I are building this insurance company. So I, 
I've learned I not only like building businesses, I especially love doing it in a heavily regulated space. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of my dream. That's great. And before we move on to Dennis, and I certainly want to get your background, Dennis, but you know, there are two things that, that have stuck in my mind from previous conversations I've had with you, Wade. The first is kind of your decision to, to not go to business school. That's a path that I took out of the military to have a more traditional option. Um, but you, you chose a different path. And the second is this idea of second order value propositions. Um, can you walk us through the first kind of your decision to not go the business school route and dive into the, the airline building business? Yeah, you know, I wanted to build a business in my, uh, you know, I got some counsel from my wife who said, look, I'll, I'll believe you can do it if you get a business degree. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's not wrong. There's a lot of that, a lot of value, a lot of wisdom in that. So we applied to business schools and I got into Stanford and we were moving out to California. And at the same time, we had an offer with the startup incubator to join. And the incubator started in January and business school started in July or August. And so um, I just, I basically said, look, a few extra months without an income is a rounding error. So let's, uh, let's try this. And we were able to raise money. And so in that, that summer, then I had a decision to make, like you've just raised four and a quarter million dollars for, uh, you know, to start an, an airline, which is not an easy thing to raise money for. And you've, uh, and you've got this opportunity at, you know, one of the world's best business schools. Um, and so I talked to some folks I knew that I really admired. And one of them said to me, uh, a Stanford alum, he said, uh, look, I loved Stanford. I made some of the best friends in my life. It was a phenomenal couple of years and it's made a real mark on my life. But one of the biggest marks it made is that it was a $20 million mistake. And I said, what do you mean it's a $20 million mistake? And he said, I had a Google, I had an equity offer at Google when I turned it down and I went to Stanford because Stanford was the sure thing. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I, so that, that definitely, you know, made an impression on me. And then I talked to, uh, I went into the office there to see if I could just defer a year. And so I went into campus and, you know, you're always, it's intoxicating being on a college campus and, you know, you've put all this work trying to get in. And, you know, I, I went to central Missouri state. So the, the leap from there to Stanford is a pretty big one. And, uh, you know, I just didn't ever see that I, myself that I would be in a position like that to, to attend such a story university. And I was really excited. And I'm, I talked to him, I said, you know, can I defer? Can I just make this decision again in a year? Right. And, uh, and they said, no, we don't really do that. But, um, but you just raised 4 million bucks to start an airline. You'll come back here and teach someday. And I don't know how to explain it, but it was like the classiest letdown ever. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, they, uh, they made me feel like a million bucks for say, and I couldn't go there right now. And uh, I, I am to this day grateful for that because I, I was able to leave and, and building a business was the right thing to do. Um, and, uh, and I don't, you know, it would have been a harder decision if they hadn't, they literally were supportive and of making, helping me make the right decision for me. Um, and you know, that, that, I guess probably a testament to the kind of school they are, but, uh, there's a little part of me still to this day that, that I don't know, laments is maybe too strong, but it's like breaking up with a girl you still love. Like you put a lot of work into this and you really wanted it to work. And, um, so there's a little part of me sometimes that looks back and thinks, you know, still would have been great to go, but, uh, no, that's kind of, that was the decision-making process. They made it sort of easy for me and built me up and made me feel good on my way out. So, Yeah. It's almost like they knew the archetype of an entrepreneur and knew that, you know, you had a clear pathway to, to find your, your purpose in life through that route and were willing to let you 
go there with that with that soft letdown. That's that's actually a really cool story. Um, so Dennis, I want to switch to you. And you know, how did you end up at Degree Insurance? What was your background, and how did you end up meeting Wade to do what you're doing right now? Yeah, I, you know, look, I'm excited that the punchline of Wade's story wasn't and that he's got enough of a lament that he's leaving Degree Insurance right now to go to business school. <laughs> so I, I, Trish, make it clear that it's uh, you never know what you're going to learn on the podcast about your co-founder. So I'm, I'm really, I had my f- fingers crossed the whole time. So I, when I was growing up, I couldn't, like, I didn't know how to spell an entrepreneur, mostly because it was a different language when I was growing up. I grew up in Russia. As you can tell, it's not a strong Chicago accent that you're hearing right now. It's a combination of things now. But I came here when I was 17 uh, in high school uh, with my parents. And senior year in high school, actually maybe junior year in high school, um, English wasn't so good. Just, I can string a couple of sentences together, but you know, I didn't have a whole bunch of a whole lot of foundation for it when I was when I came here. But but I could do numbers. I could do math. I can do calculus. I can do some stats. I was taking classes at a local community college because I sort of maxed out the high school math curriculum. And one of my teachers said, "Look, you should explore being an actuary." I said, "Well, what's an actuary?" So I looked into that and I realized that it's actually a pretty cool amalgam of a bunch of different things that allows you not to do just math at a high level, but math for the business applications in real world. So you can go into consulting, you can be in actually for insurance companies, you can do a number of different things. So that, that appealed to me and I, I did go to that, go to, to college to study actuarial science specifically. I went to a small liberal arts college in Missouri. So Wade and I paradoxically both went to you know, Missouri schools, uh, even though we come from slightly different parts of the world. And while there, um, took a bunch of exams, was successful with that approach, uh, worked for a couple of years as an actuary, loved the consulting aspect of it. Um, English got a little bit better. (laughs) I could sort of like see now the path to doing like an almost an extension of liberal arts curriculum. And you do that by going to law school. So people go to law school for any number of reasons, right? Some kids are told when they're little that, oh, you're really good at arguing. You should be a lawyer. It's like the worst advice that you can possibly give somebody for going to law school. Um, or like, you know, you think you're going to be great in the courtroom. There's another awful advice because you're never going to be in the courtroom. You're going to be pouring over documents in preparation for like one second of your life that you can spend in the courtroom. Um, but I, I like law as a, it was a great way to go and learn, continue learning how to address questions that you don't know the answer to. Right? So like law, as, as any good education should do, it should teach inquiry. Like it doesn't matter what the subject area is. You, what you ought to get out of college and maybe grad school is you ought to know how to inquire about subjects that you don't know about, that maybe no one knows about. And then you go in and then you somehow get ma- amass enough information and you can make an intelligent decision based on that. That skill has been valuable, I, I think, for the past you know, thousands of years and it will be, continue to be valuable. Um, so to me, education is like, that's the, the key part of it. Coming off the uh, law school was at Northwestern here in Chicago. And after that, I did a fairly standard path of clerking for federal judges, work for a large law firm in their appellate Supreme Court practice group. Um, and then Governor Rauner got elected in Illinois, which was unique because he was not only a Republican following several years of Democrats in the governor's office in Illinois, but he also was a unique Republican in the way that he, he wasn't coming from the establishment. So the opportunity to serve his administration presented itself and I took it. Um, and that was a fantastic experience for, for three years. I was ultimately was general counsel. And from you, you see a different platform to lawyering, right? Because you go from 
at a law firm one case at a time to now you have this giant legal apparatus of the state government at your disposal and you get to do some cool things through that through that channel leaving that experience is when i decided that i'm not going back to a law firm because it's going to be hard to sort of go to, back to doing one case at a time for one client at a time and that's around the time when i met wade and I think I may have sent a, an email to a listserv that uh, all, all of us are on. And I said something to the effect of like, hey, just exploring my next path. Um, what does it mean? Like, I'm not sure I can do a startup because I have four kids and they cannot eat equity. Like they, there has to be some Tastes level so good. of- Tastes so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's a beautiful thing, right? Some point down the road. Um, and then I had like several responses from folks saying, yeah, don't discount the startup world. Like it is actually possible to, it's not all ramen noodles and sleeping on the friend's couch. Like you're, you're not a millionaire the day you start the company, but th there is a middle ground there somewhere. Well, Wade's response was interesting because he said, hey, did you, um, did you think of any insurance matters when you were- within state government. And of course, when somebody asks you that question, what you ought to say and what I did say is, of course, I, I thought of little else. Um, in fact, there's not a day that I spend in that government not thinking about insurance regulatory matters. Well, that turned out to be the right answer because he was then intrigued to take it to the next level. And I, I flew out to New York and he and I sat down for breakfast, I think, and sort of started discussing this idea that he had, um, that he had formed, and we'll, we'll talk about how he came to that, but it was a couple of years prior to that, that he sort of started ideating on that. And we started working together first as a, I was outside counsel to the company because at the time I was also building my own legal practice thinking I'll, I'll dabble a little bit in, in that. And then it was, it was obvious to us that uh, the, the working dynamic and the relationship was so good that I went in full time and the rest is history. That's been now, Ben, I think, you know, three, three, three and a half years and counting. So since uh, what September, October of 2017. Wow, I didn't realize it had been that long. Time time flies. I think you know. I remember when you guys were first talking about this uh, at an event a couple of years ago, and it's amazing to see where you've come. So that's a great transition to what you all do at Degree Insurance. And Wade, I know you'd been thinking about this for a while, but maybe describe the problem to be solved and how you first came across what you guys do at Degree Insurance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we've all had our own experiences with higher education, but uh, I, I had a pilot who was flying for me when we were running surf air and he moved from, uh, you know, Burbank to Santa Monica or something and over the weekend and he was just moving apartments and lifting boxes, he tweaked his back and goes to the doctor and they say, yeah, look, you're going to be in pain for a long time. Uh, it's probably always going to hurt when you sit sort of eight hours in a row. But as long as you get and get up and walk around, you'll be fine. And if you had to sit somewhere for eight hours, these are the, you know, they'd prescribe them some pain pills. And for 99 point, you know, for, you know, for most careers, that wouldn't matter. But uh, when you're a pilot, your job is to sit in a cockpit for eight plus hours a day, right? Like you, you sit there and you don't move and you don't have a standing desk and you can't get up and walk around and go over to the water cooler and whatever else. And you can't fly a plane when you're on pain meds. So... In the weirdest quirk, this guy lost his career, you know, moving boxes on a weekend from one apartment to another. And he's sitting on a quarter million dollars or something in student loans because they quite literally burned jet fuel, you know, in college um, coming out of Embry-Riddle or something. And, and I remarked to one of my co-founders how tragic it was that uh, he'd made this big investment and now it wasn't going to pay off. And it was sort of that framing that higher education was an investment that led to the light bulb moment, right? Like that. 
if, if higher education is an investment, and I think we genuinely believe it is, right? You're trying to buy some increased future revenue stream. Um, then it is the largest uninsured investment market in the world. It's the only place you would counsel anyone you love to borrow 10, 20 times their net worth, make a single investment with it, and then just kind of hope that it works, right? It's crazy if you put it in those terms. You wouldn't do that if it was Amazon stock, right? Especially not to your little nephew who just turned 18, their first legal contract, and you're like, dude, borrow as much money as you can, <laughs> you know, mortgage your future for on average 21 years and put it all in Bitcoin, right? Like, it doesn't matter what you think of it. Like you, it, it would be a crazy thing to do. And yet we do that to every high school student we know. We're like, you got to go to college, man. This is how you do it. And so, uh, but the data will tell you that college works really well. In fact, if it were a stock on the stock market, it outperforms the market by 2x. And it is the most consistent performer in history. Right? There's nothing better to do, which is why we've been able to sort of, as a nation, get away with financing it the way we have. So, uh, so we looked at those two things and said, look, we should be able to build a hedge for that. Like any other investment, you know, is there, is there a way to diversify the portfolio or can we transfer some of that risk? And that's what insurance ultimately is, is risk transference. So, uh, so we, we sort of set out to build that. And at the, at the same time, I was on the board of a charter school in Connecticut, Great Oaks in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, you know, it's, it's a school that's majority minority school, takes kids that are two years behind, catches them up and gets them ready for college. And uh, as you're doing that, I'm thinking of telling the whole life cycle of the story and, you know, how do you change these, you know, the lives of these students and come to find out that, uh, you know, the population we're serving when they, when they go to college, 90% of them are going to drop out in the first 18 months. I mean, it means you aren't, you aren't changing the lives. If anything, <laughs> for students who borrow money and then go to school and don't finish, those families are made poorer, not wealthier, right? Because we, it, it's kind of a misnomer. We always talk about the American dream, like come here, work hard, get an education, and you got a chance to do whatever. And, and so that has somehow transformed into going to college is the path. Not everyone should go to college, but going to the college has never been the path. Graduating college might be the path, right? Graduating college works really, really well. And it's a subtle, but really important difference. You know, uh, if the majority of people with uh, student loans that are in default today in the United States, the majority owe less than 10 grand, but never graduated. So they didn't get the lift on their career. You just started your, you know, you started out your career and somebody put rocks in your backpack and then said, here, go, go ahead and climb the hill that the rest of us are climbing. It just made it harder. And so uh, we, you know, those two experiences sort of led to us building this fixed transference tool, this insurance product that can give you a little more perseverance, right? That, that will guarantee the outcomes on the back end of college. So what we do now is we've got an insurance product, we sell it to colleges and, and what it can do is we say, look, if you graduate in physics, you'll make 56 grand a year. Or if you graduate in math, it'll be 43 or business is 41, you know, whatever that coverage level is for that school. But, but you now know when you graduate for five years, if you don't earn what we said you will, you're going to send us your tax returns and we're going to cut you a check for the difference. Going to college cannot fail you. Um, and, and so if it, if it you know, didn't work the way you thought it would, the way we pro promised you it would, we'll give you a chance to reset because we're, we're the ones on the hook for that. We'll cut you a check for the difference. And, uh, and, and so the idea there is we can you know, push people through to graduation and 
give kids in today's environment the confidence necessary to even enroll. This wasn't as much a problem two years ago, but COVID has done a real number on higher ed. So you take, uh, I now call them the least confident generation in American history. Uh, kids who were 10 or 12 years old during the Great Recession, old enough to remember it, right? Mom and dad lost their job and they sort of the fear and everything around it. And then when it's their turn to pass that marshmallow test, right? Where the debt is immediate, the payoff is delayed and go to college. And, uh, and we get a pandemic like which we haven't seen in a hundred years, right? The great, great grandparents are the last ones who lived through something like this. And you don't know what the economy is going to look like when you graduate. And goodness, higher ed spent 25 years telling everybody that a degree that was delivered online should come with an asterisk, right? They didn't do themselves any favors. And, and you put all that together and students are going, is it going to be worth it? Is, anybody, like, is there going to be a job? Is anybody going to, is my degree going to count? And so they're not enrolling in the same numbers they always have. So now the product we've built becomes kind of even more important because we can, we can give those kids the confidence necessary to make it all the way through, to enroll and then, and then stick it out. So that's kind of, I don't know if I answered the question as directly as I maybe could have, but that, that's kind of how we got to where we're at and, and, uh, and what we're doing for the context. Yeah. And Dennis, maybe you can walk us through the, the economics behind it. You know, I think a lot of us understand insurance at a high level um, in terms of, you know, pay premiums in and something goes wrong, you know, you're protecting us to hedge, but as it pertains to higher education, you know, what's the relationship between the, the student, the school, you all, and, and how it makes sense from a business perspective to get into this. Right. So the, the product is uh, the way we've thought of it right now, the way we think of it right now, and the way we got regulatory approval to sell it, which is, I'll take a step back there. Insurance is regulated by 50 states differently. So it's, it's, the, it's the place where you wish there was just one set of regulators. Uh, this is different from Wade's previous companies where FIA is not, cannot be the easiest regulator to deal with, I can't imagine, but there's one of them. There's not one in each state, right? Uh, this one is different. So you have to go to state regulators and you have to convince them of two things. One, um, that you obviously know what you're doing. You have sound actuarial tables, that you have good data, that you have a good team, trustworthy team. So it has to, you have to prove to them that you're gonna be good stewards of policyholder dollars. Um, and the second thing, which is related of course, is the protection of the claim holders, the, the policyholders. Um, they're going to file a claim at some point in the future. The worst thing that can happen from the regulator's perspective is this company goes belly up, in which case somebody has to step in and satisfy the obligations of the potential claim holders down the road. So if we're not around, if we're insolvent, the state has to come in. And for that reason, it's not surprising that the state takes quite a bit to, to approve you. We, we spent, what, the past three years to get to the point where we finally got approved in Illinois. Which was, which was great in August of 2020, we got their first approval. And just to give you an example, our second state where we got approved, Utah, that happened two days before Christmas. So it's not the, you know, you go from zero to one to two, it's you go from the first state to pretty quickly, you get a, the next state and then we have applications now in a handful of other states and probably by the end of first quarter of this year, we'll cover more than half the country. Not in terms of the students because we'll exclude certain states initially like New York, Texas, and California, where it's a little bit harder to get approved. Um, but in terms of the sheer volume of states that will have uh, ability to sell in, that's probably gonna be more than half the country. So what we, we build actuarial tables to convince the regulators that we have a product that we ought to be able to sell to colleges. 
And the reason that matters is because colleges are sophisticated institutions, unlike the individual students where there's more scrutiny for where to sell that product. And frankly, at this point, we, we wouldn't have the kind of data that we would want to have in order to sell the product directly to, to high school students going to college. Um, we don't have the kind of individualized data, which we will begin collecting from our students, uh, but we don't have it yet. What we do have on the flip side is very, very good data from thousands of different data pieces that tells us what a particular student, or, or rather what a particular college slash major combination is going to yield for the five years after a student graduates. So pick any college in the country, um, and then you look at the major categories within that college, we can price them. And the way we do that is not dissimilar to any other insurance company where if you think of the premium stack, which like if you, if you charge, let's say two to $3,000 for a policy, X percent of it is gonna be the anticipated losses. Like we expect to pay out losses. We, we prefer that there will be zero claims, but that's not realistic, right? Any insurance company is gonna have claims. Then we have certain expense load on top of that because we have to cover our salaries and office space and things like that. And then there's the profit stack on top of that. And the profit is something you capture, not immediately because you have to make sure that the claim, claim holders are all satisfied. So there's some temporal aspect here where you take the whole premium, you invest it for solvency, so nothing terribly exciting where we, you know, you take 100% of your portfolio and you plunk it in Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency. It's a think of like the opposite spectrum of investments where it's pretty boring muni bonds and things that are similar to that where you're trying to, you know, eke out three to 4% investment return. Nothing terribly, uh, nothing terribly exciting there, but that's what we have to do. And we sell it to colleges too. So the colleges are then able to do those two things that Wade mentioned. They can use it as a recruitment tool because imagine a billboard on an interstate that says degree with a guarantee, right? And that's the college that offers that. that that's important to the parents. Parents are very, very key, like very aware when they're sending students to college right now. It's, it's not the lazy river. It's not the rock climbing wall. Like those things are fun. Sure, they replicate the experience that maybe parents had when they went. But the overarching question is, is there going to be a job? Like what kind of career services are going to be for my, my son or daughter in four to five years? What if there's the next great recession at the time? Like what does that look like? Because parents are being asked to help underwrite this huge investment that Wade mentioned there has been no guarantee that it's going to work out. So colleges use it as an enrollment tool. And then the second aspect, which is huge, is the re retention. So retention is the piece that feeds into graduation rate. Retention is measured as how many first years came back their second year. And the reason that's the tracker is because once you're there for the second year, like second to third tends to be not as big of a problem. Third to fourth, fourth to fifth, if necessary, is not a huge problem because by that point, you're probably graduating. But it's the first years who don't come back for the second year that drive the lower graduation rates around the country where we, we graduate probably less than, you know, certainly less than 60% of incoming freshmen go on to graduate across the board. And that's, that's an astonishing number the first time I've heard it, right? Because you think of this cohort of high schoolers coming in and you look at them and you're saying, yep, 40% of you are going to have debt, but no degree, which is, which is the awful state that we're going to have to try to solve here. And so colleges sell that product, colleges offer the product to the students. The individual claimants are going to be the students. So students eventually are going to come to us and they're going to say, here's how much you covered me for. And here's how much I earned. And there's the delta and you, we're on the hook for the delta. So think of us as forming a partnership of sorts with an institutions, with a college where we are 
created, we've created the product is being offered to the students. And we are, our incentives are aligned. We want to make sure as many students as possible go on to graduate. And then we can do interesting things like I mentioned before, we don't want to pay out any claims if we don't have to. The best way to do it is to ensure that every single student out earns the coverage. And if we have the kind of data that colleges themselves don't have, the example we use all the time is if you're a computer science major, if you put Java courses or whatever else that's, that's hot at the time on your resume, you can earn ten dollars to $15,000 more starting out. Well, if we know that and we're covering to the median and we know that we can supply information that moves the students above that median, that de risk, <clears throat> excuse me, that de risks us and makes it, makes it for a great business proposition. So there's incentive alignments that are built in as we're offering the product, which is why we think ourselves as partnering with universities to make sure that students achieve the best outcome possible, as opposed to purely mercenary, hey, we have a product, you're gonna pay for our product, and then we go our separate ways. So just so I'm clear, the university pays you to get the, the policy, then they ask the student if they want to opt in. Is this, does the student pay an additional kicker on top of their tuition to do that? Or like, what would be the, why would a student not opt in if there's yeah. no cost to them? That's a good clarification, um, Ben. So we sell it to a college so that they offer it to 100% of their students. I see. So the student, a student could opt out, but to your point, there's absolutely no reason to opt out. In fact, it will be foolish to opt out. Even if you don't want this insurance policy, like it doesn't, it didn't cost you anything extra. Now, this is sort of in the immediate sense. Obviously, we can talk about did it cost them extra because instead of a certain scholarship, they got this product, right? So there's different ways in which cost can obviously be offset. But in the immediate sense, right, once the product is on the table and is being offered to 100% of income and freshmen, then there's absolutely no reason for the student, individual student to opt out. And I guess one of the questions that comes to mind for me, and I'd love to hear either of your thoughts on this, is it seems like there's a difference in philosophy of what school is for. As I think of, you know, say an, an elite Ivy League liberal arts school, you know, it would seem uncouth for them to talk about starting salaries coming out because education is its own benefit. Like if I'm an administrator there, like, Yes, maybe I care about what their income is going to be, but you know we don't want to we don't want to play in the in the in the financial realm. But I can see like you know the middle college middle colleges in our country who truly are engaging with the the workforce that's going to go out and earn a living afterwards, kind of seeing this product. I guess the question here is, what's been the response of the universities you've engaged with on this topic? And that philosophical angle of is education for like a betterment of the mind or is it actually to build you up to actually have a payable career going forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I, this is Wade. I, I don't think you have, um, I don't think there are very many gentlemen farmers like from the Victoria area going to school today, right? Who are just like, I'm learning for learning for, for the virtuous sake of learning. Uh, th that's great. They just, not a lot of us can afford to do that. I think the vast majority of people are going to school because they're making an investment in their future earnings. And so for those, this is the concern. Will it work? Does it deliver value? Um, there are certainly students, you know, who are coming out of elite schools. You know, they, they went to Yale, they borrowed $200,000 to do it. And they graduated with a degree in, you know, Irish poetry from the middle centuries. And it's probably not a highly remunerative degree, but they did something they loved and they could afford to do that. For most of us, uh, you know, the guys like me who went to central Missouri state, that and why we went to college, right? 
your, uh, my options were 12 bucks an hour working in a warehouse or, you know, go to college and, and try to find a better path. So, um, for those in, in any institution serving those schools, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very good mission alignment. De Dennis mentioned that, you know, 40% of kids aren't going to graduate in six years. Um, four in 10 American students who start college then got debt, but not the degree. We are dangerously close as, as an industry to having higher education in the United States, make more families poor than wealthy, right? Extract, like make more kids worse off than they made kids better off. That should be terrifying, right? And so if, if we can, so, so there's mission alignment in saying, look, the job is to graduate kids, not to get them in the front door, it's to get them out the, the door on the backside, the, the right direction. Um, so that, that I think is really, really important. One of the other things that's worth, and, and, and you're probably right, like uh, the Harvards and Yales and Stanfords of the world, they might not need it. They also don't have a shortage of students and their graduation rates are probably 96% or higher, right? But, uh, but most schools don't look like that profile. It's worth noting that for most colleges, the, uh, the insurance product likely pays for itself. Likely actually the school itself makes money by having provided this guarantee and better meeting their mission and better serving their students because more students enrolled, but, and importantly though, because they stayed through to graduation, right? If you put it in the terms of a startup or a business, since I know we're, you're, uh, you, you know, your podcast is focused on startups, what's the LTV a student, right? Like the, the CAC, the cost to acquire the student nationally, average cost to acquire a college student is about 5,300 bucks. And so, hey, you spent your 5,300, you got a student in the door, if they drop out after semester two, right? They didn't make it from freshman to sophomore. And that's fairly common. A lot of schools have a you know 70% persistence rate from year one to year two. Well, instead of getting eight or more often now because the average is five years to graduate, 10 semesters of tuition and room and board and like and all, the, all the other you know things that that student would have paid, you got two semesters worth, right? So you can 4X your you know, the lifetime value of that student, if you can get them to stay. So from a university's just financial, like the business model of how you run a university, the university is better off having offered it. They'll, they'll actually break even on, you know, two, three years, they'll make money on year four. And, you know, anybody who had to stick around for a super senior year, right? So the, the university ends up ahead. The student was able to go confidently forward, have a guarantee on the back end. And if, you know, if, the, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, it didn't work for them, they got a, you know, they got a safety net that they could rely on. And, you know, and we make, we make money as a business on that risk transference piece on making sure that everyone has access to it. So, um, and, and our incentives are aligned with the student. The best thing we can do is make sure they out earn our coverage level. If I tell you, you're going to make 40 grand a year and, uh, you know, Dennis runs the numbers and says, yes, this is 40 grand is what you're going to do. And you come out and you make 44. Well, we're not on the hook for anything. That's fantastic. You win, we win, the school's happy. Insurance should work like that, should be a virtuous cycle that way. Um, not, you know, as an industry, historically, that's not been the brand, I would say. But, uh, but we're pretty confident we can build that here, right? That's how it'll work. Yeah, and so going back. And so it sounds like you guys might have universities signed up, but I guess what, as you go on your, your business development, uh, conversations like what's what's been the reaction? Are people just signing up in droves? Do they have pushback? How are, how are they engaging with this product? Yeah, and I can I can take that. I was gonna throw one additional thing, Ben, just going back to the previous question where where you started. Um, yeah, where, where you see this sort of debate between 
what what a college is for is it a you know, victorian era gentleman farmers uh, or not um it's in the question of is liberal arts education worth it so you started to see some analysis that's coming out that suggests sure stem majors maybe out earn liberal arts majors for the first you know five years but then by year 10 uh, they catch up and then it flips because it turns out that the market maybe is valuing the the education that's provided in the more more sort of traditional liberal arts setting um, in, in terms of that inquiry a little bit higher. And that's what I, I think I, I was speaking to that a little bit at the very beginning when we started talking where I said to me, education is critical in, in that it's not the tactical education, so to speak. Not, there's nothing wrong with code, code academies. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic thing to be able to learn to code and then you go apply it. But I think you can do, uh, you ought to be able, you ought to want to do more with your education because what you want to do is you want to learn a skill that allows you to pick up whatever it is that happens to be in 20 or 30 years. You ought to have the skill set to pick up additional knowledge and, and translate it into something useful. Well, if that's, if that's the debate that's, been, that's happening right now, liberal arts versus STEM, and as more studies are coming out to, to suggest that liberal arts degrees are actually quite valuable, a lot of colleges, um, this is sort of abstracting away from, moving away from the elite, inst elite institutions, but college, liberal arts colleges in the middle of Illinois, Missouri, anywhere else around the country, they are, even if we would have thought historically, they would take the attitude of, well, we're not assigning dollar values to our degrees, right? Um, that's, that's not for us. That's, that's the technical schools. Now, you best believe that even a liberal arts college, the administration there is going to say, no, we fully believe that our degree is going to create a better economic future for you. And here is why. So we are introducing our product at a time that's actually quite, quite good for us because there's so much attention that's being paid to what is the value of degrees at colleges where historically you may have taken a different perspective and said, well, don't worry about the dollars. You're just here to learn in some metaphysical sense, right? So that's, uh, I wanted to add that a little bit to what Wade yeah, was talking. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, and then the, the reception from the schools right now that we talked to, um, I'll say two things. One, the reception has been terrific. We haven't, but we haven't sold the products anywhere yet. Now, the reason for the second is primarily that we just got licensed in August of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, to sell insurance without a license requires a certain jail term that neither Wade nor I were gonna like. We're, we're happy to different to go kind through. of equity. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's uh, you know like my family doesn't require much of like food over like roof, roof and food on the table, um, and also like dead, not in jail, right? So there's like little things that come, come into play. Um, so you have to get licensed first. Um, we got our license, we start talking to colleges and the reception is great because nobody says, oh, well, this is not necessary. Like this product, yeah, what is it for? The, the value proposition is there and it's felt quite strongly. Now, of course, there's a tactical question of now during COVID where budgets are, are are hard and where cash is non-existent, how, how do they pay for that? And we have different creative ways where we can structure things where we always, we always say that it's, uh, cost, is, cost is unlikely to be the prohibitive aspect here, but it's certainly something we have to work through and address. But the conversations have been very encouraging. We, uh, we just completed three days in Utah where I was there and Wade and I drove to different schools. And it's not a lot of products where you can walk in off the street and have and have a meeting with somebody just based on without any introductions, you know, call it cold call and whatnot. The 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 success of opening doors to a to a cold email or a cold just walking in the door is has uh, been pretty remarkable. And I think what that speaks to is there's this there's the felt need right now in higher education to 
administrators understand that what's happening is there's fewer students that are going to enroll. And we are, you know, five years away from the cliff that they know about, which is kids who weren't born in the, in the Great Recession, right, in 2008, 2009, 2010. Well, that's the 12% to 15% drop in college enrollees that's common in five to six years. So colleges that we're talking to, especially the ones that are going to be likely first adapters of this product, small liberal arts colleges, they know that unless there is some value differentiating product that they're going to be able to offer to students, um, they're facing a very, very, very dangerous scenario where unlike Harvard of the world, um, just, just to pick on them, but just sort of like you understand, like to, to take that, that's cool. If there's fewer students applying, they can look at their wait list and they can take the cream of the crowd, the best students they can possibly get from other schools. Now, what happens as you go further down that sort of quote unquote food chain, whether it's US News World Report rankings or however you define colleges in the country, eventually you end up with a college where they don't have a wait list. They were just happy to accept everybody, like as many kids as who, who applied there. And now that pool has shrunk. So they know that we know that it's not a, some kind of a secret, uh, you know, secret sauce here that like nobody is aware of. They understand the demographics, the, the changes. And that's why I think from my perspective, I don't, I don't sit here harboring a lot of doubt that the product is going to be bought and it's going to be successful. Yeah, what strikes me about this product and, you know, the whole regulated space in general, Wade, I know you've done a number of startups kind of in regulated industries, is if you can get past the early regulatory hurdles, i.e. get your licensing, and it starts taking off, that's almost a built-in moat that, you know, the market normally fills opportunity, but you're going to have a one, two, three-year head start if you can prove success while the other companies kind of gen up their, their regulatory um, kind of foundation to execute against this. Um, so, you know, maybe talking more broadly, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurial ecosystems, we tend to, at least in the, the broad culture and the literature, you know, talk about more free market oriented thing. Hey, there's an unmet need, go execute against it, move fast and break things, you know, disregard the rules. But it seems like there's a burgeoning uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem within that regulatory environment because there's opportunities that haven't been met. Like, how do you guys, how do you guys see that regulatory environment actually playing to your advantage in this particular industry? Yeah, so, so I, I have a theory um, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and spoken about what I call the, the iron balloon. But I, you think of a big company as a balloon that doesn't want to be popped, right? And so it builds this, it, it works with regulators because they've got the money to spend on it. And they build this giant iron, iron bulwark around themselves so that they can't be popped. And so you can, you can build a company two ways. You can either go somewhere else, right? Don't bug the balloon, build a blue ocean business, you know, doing something else, or you fight your way through the blowhole and, you know, that it gets tied off at the bottom of the balloon. If you can fight your way through that and it's painful and it's slow going and it's expensive. Uh, but if you can get through that, right, if you can, if you can pay that early, early regulatory cost on the other side of it is nothing but growth. Right? So if you think of the fastest growing startups you can think of, they're often in heavily regulated space. Uber, Uber and Airbnb and Theranos, even though it turned out to be a fraud, right? But, but like if uh, you know, anybody rolling out a new pharmaceutical drug, a new treatment, right? Things in heavily regulated space grow very quick, very fast if they can pay that upfront cost. And so that's the, the first piece is the theoretical like, yeah, it's just an upfront cost. So, so you can pay that, you can build a business model around understanding that and making sure you've got the resources necessary, et cetera, et cetera. 
The second piece though, is that if I want to go start a SaaS company today, I can do that. There are hundreds of them and I've got to go out compete, you know, a hundred other companies, largely chasing after the same set of companies for sales and the same set of opportunities, but it's blue ocean because there's, no, there's no rules, right? And, and, and you figure it out. In a heavily regulated space, I don't have to be smarter than everybody else. I just have to work harder. Because while I might not know the path, I might not know that there was a day I walked into an office that the FAA in Washington, D.C. and said, I want to start an airline. And they kind of rhetorically pat you on the head and say, well, that's cute, but that's going to be really hard. And you're like, yeah, yeah, hard, hard I can handle. But so, so what do I have to do, though? And uh, even though I don't know the path, the, there is a known path and there are streetlights on it, right? You can see the way down. You can see the next streetlight. And so they said, well, you'd have to start, you'd have to, you'd have to fill out this form and send it to these 12 offices and three copies of it, whatever. And so I, you know, grabbed the form off on the wall and I'm like, do it. So can I take this one? Do you want me to photocopy it? Is there somewhere I download it? Like, what do I do? I now know step one. I don't know what step two and three are, but I know step one. I can do that. Like it, it but there, uh, the, the attitude is always, oh yeah, but it's really hard. And frankly, like you make different career decisions in different fields. And the guy sitting in that FAA office was tenured after a year, right? It's not a judgment on the career choices that they made, but like he chose a stable career path where he didn't have to take risks. And so he's not likely to understand someone who's like, yeah, no, I, I get it that it's hard, but tell me what I need to do, right? So people build it up as this massive risk when in reality, building the business in a heavily regulated space may carry less risk because the path is known. The path from A to Z, from not licensed to licensed is a known path. Somebody knows it. I might not yet, but you can ask, you can find out, and then you just have to outwork people. And I am much more confident that I can outwork other people than I am that I can outsmart other people. So for me, that's why, that's why I get comfortable in heavily regulated space. That's why I like it. Plus regulations are largely inefficient. So it creates all sorts of fascinating opportunities once you get through that flow hole, right? You can find things. When we built Surf Air, we standardized, you know, we use the same lesson from Southwest. You standardize on one aircraft, it keeps your maintenance and your training cross flow. You know, that Southwest did that and everybody kind of learned the lesson. But as we're going through the regulatory challenges, we're building a subscription airline, two grand a month, all you can fly. And no, you know, we don't sell tickets. Well, that's not a model the FAA has really considered before because every airline sells tickets. So there are questions they have like, you know, your 9-11 tax as a percentage of the ticket cost. Well, I can put a zero in a numerator. I know exactly how much I owe you because there were the ticket cost zero dollars, right? Like there was no ticket. And so, but that, that wasn't the intent. So you got to figure it out. So, so you find those things, but also as we're going through it, you learn that TSA regulates people getting on planes with 10 or more passengers. So at Surf Air, we standardized on a nine passenger aircraft. And suddenly we could save all of our customers that massive pain point that you have going to the airport and you got to be there an hour early and doing all that stuff because, hey, there's this pocket of inefficiency that we can now leverage as an airline. Right. So we standardized on one aircraft, just like Southwest did. We just standardized an aircraft with nine seats. And so on our, on our launch day, we had a TSA official. He came out and he's standing at the fence watching our plane go, take off. Cause they do a little ceremonial thing. The fire department's shooting water cannons over your aircraft as it takes off. So he came out and I'm standing there next to him and I'm like, um, you know, can I help you? And he's like, yep, just here to watch. I'm like, okay. He's like, cause we don't, we don't handle anything that size. <laughs> now that, that was it. Right. And that was our entire interaction with TSA in the company's history because we found a, a pocket of inefficiency inside the regulation. There's a lot of that opportunity. 
but you don't know what it is until you're marching that regulatory path. And, and then one of the street lights just lights up the fact that there's an opportunity sitting there. So that's kind of, I don't, I don't know if I'm answering the direct question, but that, that's why I like heavily regulated space and, and why I think there's great, great opportunities there and why we can do some of the things I think we're gonna be able to do. People hadn't put insurance together with higher education before. They basically looked at it from the financing side and said, well, it's loan financed, but you can't, uh, you can't repossess it. So we'll make it non-dischargeable debt. And it's now it's mob money, but you can, you know, we'll just break your knees. You can never get away from it because they didn't know how to deal with it. Well, it's like, frankly, it's not a hard innovation to say like, what about insurance? But nobody from insurance is thinking about it. And nobody from higher ed is thinking about insurance. And so we just, we found an opportunity and are able to do it. Now what's, you know, the venture ecosystem obviously has the customers and the startups, but there's also the investors. And I know our mutual friend, Sal and Trust Ventures has invested in y'all, you know, regulated industries is, is his bread and butter. And I think it's a fascinating investment thesis. But as you've talked to other investors, you know, regulation and insurance doesn't seem to be in the sweet spot of, of many, you know, Silicon Valley VC firms, but like, what has been the, the reception from investors as they look at this idea? Yeah, you know, I, um, VCs kind of get painted with a broad brush lots of times. And, and there's, uh, I'll, I'll say that there's probably a more generous take. I have a more generous take on, on professional investors than sometimes is the popular narrative. We, you walk into a room with some of the smartest people you can hope to run, you know, run into. And for an hour, they spend time thinking about how to make your, your business better. Now, often what that looks like is they're poking holes in your thesis or trying to find what's wrong or, or walking you through say, so why wouldn't it work? And what about this? And won't this make it fail, right? And, and so a lot of times entrepreneurs get beat down by that process. But if you think of it, it's, it's like an hour's worth of free consulting from Bain & Company or BCG, right? Uh, super smart folks come in and they tell you, well, this is, this is where I think it'll, you know, you'll, you'll trip up. And you get to leave that meeting and you get to go attack that thing they pointed out and be better at it for the next meeting. So, um, so the process itself of fundraising is a good one, but uh, like, like the, there were no VCs sitting around saying to themselves, I sure hope someone brings me an airline deal today, you know, and we, and we raised three rounds in six months from Silicon Valley firms, from NEA, from like great sort of notable folks. Um, and so I think what you have are a group of really, really smart men and women taking a look at what you do. And so while they might be, you know, it, there, there are no hard and fast rules in it, which in, in venture investing, which is really nice. It's more art than science. And so they're, they can flex to things. So they might have a general predisposition to say, look, airlines, you know, since deregulation as an industry, they're net negative, right? Airlines lose money. And I must've heard the joke, how do you become a millionaire in aviation? And the answer is start with a billion dollars and open an airline, right? I must've heard right. that a thousand times. But uh, so they're not sitting around saying, I hope someone brings me an insurance deal or I hope someone brings me an airline. But when you walk in with something that they haven't heard before, the posture is never run you out of the room. The posture is always like, okay, let's take a look at this. This is different, this is new. And they're really smart. So they, they know there are some like the early challenges or obvious challenges, like regulatory, man, that's, that's gonna need more capital upfront, right? And they think in those terms, so okay, more capital, but, that, but is there a disproportionately higher upside on the back end, right? Is it, is it get to be a bigger business because of it? And if you can convince them like, hey, we can get through that regulatory, like the, the, the blowholes, I call it, like the, you know, that, that piece of the balloon, 
right? If you can get through that fast enough and at low enough cost, well then, hey, there is a big opportunity on the other side, then, then it can work. And, uh, you know, Dennis and my backgrounds, A, I've built businesses in heavily regulated space. B, Dennis is, you know, an actuarial savant and an elite level attorney. Like, well, hey, that's a pretty powerful combination to say that regulatory challenge you're afraid of, we're actually really good at that piece. So let's like, it, it, so that that barrier is less than you think, which means the math of does the upfront cost pay off on the, the big opportunity later makes sense work. Right. And so then they're able to do it. I think, uh, you know, it's easy to say like this type of business doesn't work or that type of business is hard, but I think venture investors especially are very good at finding the exceptions to those rules. Right. And so that's, uh, so you're just looking for those yeah. folks. And I think of, of fundraising a lot as, uh, as selling art, right? And it's a Jackson Pollock. You walk into one room and they go, I don't know, my three-year-old could do that. You know, it doesn't, doesn't, just doesn't catch them right. And another one goes, this is genius. This is brilliant. And so you're just looking for those guys and girls who believe in the art you're selling, believe in the vision, catch what it is, love the story about the artist, et cetera, and go forward. And so, yeah, I think there's... <laughs> especially right now, there's a lot of money and there are a lot of investors and there's a bell curve of in, in any sort of grouping you've got. So there are a lot of really good investors out there and you just got to find them. Yeah, I, that, that definitely makes sense. And leveraging on your comment of, of Dennis being a savant when it comes to actuarial stuff, you know, Dennis, one of the things I'm seeing is an increased uh, number of companies and mindshare being devoted to this problem of uncertainty in salaries. So one of my friends from business school, a guy named uh, Charlie, he runs a company called Pando. They basically created risk sharing pools among similar uh, professions. So it started out with professional baseball. Now they extended to MBA students. You know, one student might go to consulting, one might go to a high growth startup, one might start his own thing, but they share a percentage of their, of their income. Um, what do you think, obviously there's a, there's a market who's showing that, hey, the college degree is maybe not what it's made out to be. But what do you think is driving this explosion in alternative kind of risk sharing models, whether it be insurance from degrees or professions, or even like the Lambda schools of the world that are trying to have some sort of protection for their students? Like what's the marketplace showing us? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of, couple of interesting things there. On the, on the Lambda school is the, is the recognition that, think of what you've had historically. So I, I know we can pick it on the, the gentlemen farmers who go to college to better themselves. But you also had um, vocational schools, you had traditional vocational education. And I think when something new shows up like computer science, like coding, uh, you try to fit it into the general curriculum, right? So back in, whenever we started teaching computer science, and I, I don't know when that happened, but let's, let's suppose that that's in the 80s and the 90s, right? Um, you don't think of, okay, that's the curriculum that we can sort of set aside and give it to vocational schools. Like, no, that has to be embraced in a computational setting of a large university. Maybe it's Caltech who's going to lead, right? There's going to be schools like that for building out the curriculum. But then I think before too long, you realize that what you have is you have a, you have a thing that's just well made for vocational type, like training somebody to do to, how to code. And if somebody wants to do that, there's absolutely no reason why that person should necessarily want to go and, you know, figure out what great books they need to read, right? And, and whatever other educational opportunities you have in a traditional college setting, 
And so it's perfectly, it's a perfectly fine choice. It's just, it takes us, there's some lag between something new showing up, right? And then there's the, the sort of this, the infrastructure that's being built to teach that new thing in a setting that's not college. Because by default, everything just defaults back to, well, colleges educate people and therefore they will fit this curriculum into the overall college ecosystem. So I think that's part of what you see in there. Um, on the question of panda, pandas of the world, that I think is incredibly fascinating because you have, and it doesn't happen, sort of think of them and us together in a way. We're ensuring the median salary across any number of different majors because we are banking on the fact that for the first five years of your, you enter a work workforce, there's some noble bell curve that we can identify that we've collected the data that allows us to identify. Now it's not a, and I, I know Ben, you in particular, you, you understand enough of this concept that like, it's not bell curve in the traditional sense, it's the log right. normal thing because there's a long tail to the right because there's a Mark Zuckerberg that has to be accommodated somewhere on the distribution. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the spread is not that wide. Panda looks at areas where like Major League Baseball, right? Where the swings are huge. And so you have this unique opportunity that they've identified that, that allows them to go in and sell a product precisely because of those huge swings. Our product works because by and large, it's, it's predictable for the first five years. If we had huge swings that were like that, I'm not sure that our model is gonna be like the best way to solve that particular problem. So I, I do find it fascinating to see what they're doing. But to your question in particular, I, I do think it's the lag between something new showing up and all of us collectively realizing that it doesn't have to be traditional four-year colleges that solve that need. I mean, is that a, a broader symptom of just society recognizing there is something, maybe fundamentally is too hard of a word, but something wrong with the system as designed? And so there are entrepreneurs and others trying to figure out a way to, again, fairness isn't the right word, but to make it more equitable and to kind of remove some of the the uncertainty and debt burden, or is the, or is the system good enough? But the, we're fixing things around the edges to make it yeah. more smooth. I think the um, I'll say a couple of things on that. I know I've heard Wade in particular make make this point before that like Oxford is what older than the Aztec Empire, and so you you bet on things that have existed for for hundreds of years. Um, so I do think that the higher education as a traditional like four year granting degree like that's not going away anytime soon. But what is, what is interesting is we are, I think, collectively realizing that we, we did a disservice when we've said the goal is go to college. And the reason it's a disservice is because we've sort of lost track, as Wade eloquently described at the beginning of the podcast, it's not go to college, it's graduate from college. That's, that's the trigger, but we never say that. We never say to a high school student, hey, graduate from college. We say go to college. It's the enrollment, like pushing everybody, pushing the masses to just enroll in a four-year granted institution. And I think we've realized that that's, that's a disservice because there's it's a fine choice not to go to college because you want to pursue this alternative path, whether because you have entrepreneurial instincts or because you're happy engaging in some profession that does that you learn a skill and you apply that for the rest of your life. There's a uh, you may have heard of this book, uh, Ikigai, about uh, this, this area in Japan where they figured out why, do, why are people so happy and why do they live so long? And it turns out that they're very, very good about learning a skill and like their life is defined as applying that skill over and over and they have a successful, productive lives and they, they probably without the level of stress that's, that's there when you try to do something else. But I sort of thought of that as we were 
is we're trying to address this question of four-year colleges for everybody and uh, something something different. So we, Wade and I, uh, the way we think of it is we make it very clear that this product that we're building, it is not like we don't start from the position that every single person has to go to college to be successful. We are addressing the problem of if you go to college, not graduating is a bad decision. So go or don't go, those are fine options. But once you enroll, you ought to graduate because going halfway, that's, the, that's what we're seeing right now for you know 40% of the incoming freshmen. And that's the tragic thing that we have to address. But don't go to college is a fine choice. And that's where I, I'm, I'm excited that there's Lambda schools and folks like that. There's the Peter Thiel's famous, like, oh, I have so much money on the table if you choose to drop out of college. Like that's, that cuts a little bit like, that model doesn't scale. So like he's not offering that to, you know, millions of high school seniors, um, but it's sort of the, the fundamental impulse there is the same. Well, gentlemen, we're kind of at the end of our time, but as we wrap, I'd like you to look in your crystal ball to the next 10 or 20 years. You know, we've heard a lot of rumors about the lower level colleges going bankrupt, you know, changes in the, in the system. What does higher education look like in 20 years? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think it looks largely like it looks today. There's a hybrid teaching model. So you'll be, uh, you're at a residential campus, just like, you know, you or I went to, um, living in a dorm, but of your five classes, you know, three are in person and, and two are online and you're taking them from your pajamas in your dorm room. Um, I think a lot of the other things and parts of that collegiate experience are sort of what they are. I would guess 70% of students are in person and 30% are full-time online. Uh, that's probably one of the bigger changes. And then, like Dennis pointed out with Lambda School and others, there, there are two types of learning that happen in, in college. One is knowledge transference, right? Coding. You started, you couldn't code. You ended, you could code. Uh, that's very different than a literature course where you started and you hadn't read, you know, something and now you have, right? Like, you're, you're a better creative, you know, thinker or problem solver. Like it, it's just, it's less tangible, right? So those things that are knowledge transfer, climbing a utility pole, coding, uh, engineering, those things may find their way out of a university system or, or more commonly into other sort of vehicles for content delivery. There's no reason that you need to take four years to learn to code, right? Like Lambda School can show you can do it and be productive and compete with others and get jobs at the Googles and Facebooks of the world after nine months. Right, and it's entirely online. And so the model for knowledge transfer education may separate from the, novel, the model for broader classical or liberal arts education. Um, both re retain their value, both continue to you know, prove their utility. And Dennis highlighted that you know, when you're, you, we all kind of know, it's certainly suspected, but like everybody generally knows that if I have a STEM major, I graduated a higher income level than a liberal arts major. But what is less commonly known that Dennis mentioned earlier is that that liberal arts major is going to catch up and often surpass people in like a 10 year window. Um, and, and that's because, you know, as a startup guy, if I, if I was hiring a kid right out of school today and they're a computer science major or an engineer or whatever, I know exactly what they can do for me. I know how on day one to plug them in and make them productive in my company. If I can, if I hire an English major, I don't know that. I know they can think, I know they're smart and they can probably write, but it takes a while for me to train them up on the things I need them to do at my company. But later, because they are good writers, because they're good communicators, because they're good at these other skills. So they, they get promoted faster than that, that sort of, uh, you know, STEM major, if you will. 
And five to 10 years from now, they're going to, they're going to overlap. They're going to be earning the same. Well, if you plot lifetime earnings, there's, because there was a gap in those early years, that STEM major still has higher lifetime earnings quite often. Right. But there's, there's a lot of scenarios where that liberal arts major actually surpasses the, uh, the engineer or the, you know, computer science major who has been earning at or near their full potential for all of their career. Right. Whereas the other, the other group of students is climbing. So, so both are valid, both are good career choices, both, you know, there, there's no judgment sort of if somebody should or shouldn't do one or the other, you should find that place where you're happiest and able to afford the lifestyle that makes you happiest. It lets you do things you want, raise your family and, you know, participate in your community, et cetera. So, so I think you might see a bifurcation in higher education, like some institutions becoming, you know, doubling down on those knowledge transfer sort of fields and others focusing more on the, on the broader liberal arts education, but uh, you know, Dennis mentioned the Lindy effect. Things that have been around a thousand years are already are more likely to be around for the next thousand than things that have been around for 20 years, right? So the, the university education system isn't going anywhere and it won't change quickly. One, one of the, my, my theory around COVID and, and the changes in our society is that those changes, those things that happened that accelerated pre-existing trends, th those changes are probably here to stay. Those changes that were wholly new activities will probably go away. So nobody was wearing masks before COVID. You'll know your quote after COVID when masks go away. But remote work and digital you know, content delivery and online education was already a trend. So with this accelerated that, that probably isn't going to go away, right? That trend was accelerated. That's probably here to stay. So you'll see the hybrid learning model. Um, that'll probably be here to stay. But most of the other changes that we see in society and in higher education are probably temporary, right? So I, I think in 20 years, it looks a lot like it does today, to be honest. I don't know, Dennis, if you have different thoughts than, than I do on, on how things might change. Uh, no, I don't think it's gonna look drastically different. What I find fascinating um, and what I think will happen is you have the, think of, a, think of a university president right now. They're under incredible challenge to pressure rather to return to the pre-COVID normalcy as quickly as possible because parents are paying the same tuition dollars and students are paying the same tuition dollars and education it looks very differently. And so there's gonna be this bifurcation as I see between administrators that are gonna take a short-term perspective of we have to very quickly go back to looking like what we used to look like. And those they spot opportunities in this new space where, all right, we've now, we've been forced to introduce a little bit more of an online educational curriculum into our overall teaching. And it turns out that there's a lot of things that like you mentioned knowledge transference, those things could happen just as easily where like for free, you can find courses from Stanford, from Yale, from other places. If you, if you have enough, enough time, you can sit and watch lectures. And a lot of those courses that are free through different free platforms, they will also give you quizzes where you can like test yourself. You can also do worksheets. Like you can have quite a bit of education without paying a single cent for that. And if that's incorporated into the overall college experience, there's actually an interesting thing there where colleges can still continue providing this overall framework where a person acquires the, the, in, the, the mode of inquiry, the, the skill set through which they're going to learn new things after they leave college. Because the important thing is what are they going to do when they leave college, not so much when they're there for four years. And schools that record administrators that take a little bit of a long-term perspective and maybe because they have the political capital to take the perspective or for whatever reason they're, they're able to do that. I think the interesting development over the next 20 to 30 years is what successful colleges look like when they do embrace 
a lot more of the like online delivery models, especially those that are free. And they focus on the things that they do well, which is connecting students with faculty and actually providing that missing element that online education does not. And so I, I'm excited to see what happens there over the next 20 to 30 years without like what Ben asked for, which is give you some prognostication on that. I, I'm not <laughs> sure which way it goes, but I'm excited to see how it develops. And so as we close, where can folks go to find more about degree insurance and what y'all are working on? Well, you can, you can follow us at Degree Insurance on Twitter. Uh, degreeinsurance.co is our company website. And obviously, Wade Ireland and Dennis Moroshko are both unique enough names. We're pretty easy to find on LinkedIn as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thanks for the, the awesome conversation. I have probably 10 more questions I could have uh, dug into. Um, but in the, in the interest of time, we'll have to end it here. But thanks so much for your doing. We look forward to seeing how you guys progress in the coming years and beyond. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for taking time to spend time with another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. We'll see you next week.